You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 25th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary meet to discuss their differences. But will Budapest agree to toe the party line? Also ahead on today's programme, we ask whether a new Somalian television station can help counter Islamic extremism in East Africa. Plus, Taiwan's local elections, the latest business headlines and Andrew Muller will offer us his take on what the past seven days have taught us. We mostly learned this week that a World Cup staged in a country with a dismal human rights record and almost zero footballing tradition in the middle of winter, yet nevertheless in scorching sunshine, was about as good an idea in practice as it had long seemed in theory. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Ukraine has said that around half of the country's electricity needs are currently not being met following a wave of Russian missile strikes. The International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor is attempting to launch proceedings against the feared Ugandan rebel leader Joseph Kony. And Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, has said the platform will provide a general amnesty to some suspended accounts from next week. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, yesterday, the Visegrad Four, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary finally met in Slovakia for the first time in months after previous meetings had been cancelled due to what Hungary's populist Prime Minister Viktor Orban called geopolitical divergence. Well, Lucia Viruskova is a journalist based in Slovakia and joins me on the line now. Uh, welcome to The Globalist on Monocle 24, Lucia. Why has it taken several attempts to agree to this meeting? Hello, greetings from Slovakia. Well, there have been quite different views uh, between these countries uh, on on several issues. In fact, the last time that they met after the the war in Ukraine started was in London when they met Boris Johnson, the ex-Prime Minister. Uh, So that was the last time. And since then on, uh, there there was one key issue in which uh, especially Slovakia, the Czech Republic and and Poland disagreed with Hungary and that that obviously was uh, the issue of relations with Russia and rhetoric toward Ukraine. But we should say that uh, there has been uh, some other issue and that's basically the thing that uh, both Slovakia and the Czech Republic have uh, tried to to put some distance between them and Poland in Hungary in some other legal and uh, rule of law issues that both Poland and Hungary are uh, now tackling with the EU. Now, was Hungary's attitude to Russia's invasion of Ukraine addressed during this meeting? Uh, 
Yeah, yesterday, uh, basically, all four leaders uh, uh, went out of their way to uh, to express their unity uh, on the issue of uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, all three leaders said that they did hear um, uh, Mr. Orban uh, telling them that uh, his position is basically the same, that they don't want uh, Russia to remain the external threat to the European Union. Union and that they want uh, Ukraine to uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity uh, to to be kept. So that's what they expressed, and it was basically mainly because of all the criticism that Hungary received before the meeting. Mm. And what about san- sanctions? Did Hungary agree over sanctions on Russia? Well, that that wasn't tackled at all. We can say that basically they only allowed journalists four questions, so we couldn't ask more. But uh, the questions were not mentioned uh, at all at this point. Maybe it's because it's not currently basically debated at some current uh, uh, EU level meeting. So it wasn't something that they would mention. Mm. Now, Hungary had been the only NATO member other than Turkey not to ratify the accession of Finland and Sweden into the military alliance. But I understand there was movement on this. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was also uh, the question that the other three leaders said that they were that, that they wanted to push uh, Viktor Orban on this issue. And he did actually say that uh, uh, Hungary, the Hungarian uh, government has already uh, adopted its uh, uh, support uh, for this. And it will basically be adopted also by the parliament, but it will not be uh, made this year, but it will be um, adopted. It, uh, in the Hungarian parliament in, in its first uh, plenary sitting uh, next year, 2023. Viktor Orban himself said that neither Finland nor Sweden will lose one second or one minute of their uh, of their time before they're accepted uh, to the NATO because of Hungary. And do you think Hungary's change of heart is due to the fact that the European Commission wants to withhold billions of euros of, of EU money from Hungary? Well, we could say that it's, of course, it's connected, but it's also basically a separate issue. There are some other issues that are connected uh, with with Hungary. And yes, yes, we could say that the the Hungarian prime minister wants to show that his views are not so different. Although, of course, in his uh, uh, Hungarian media space, uh, the rhetoric is somewhat maybe different than when what appears when he's speaking in front of uh, other European leaders. So we could say that he wants to show uh, that uh, he's on the same line and he he wants to fight for for these funds. That's that's for sure, because that's what he needs. He also mentioned that he he expects some more funds uh, from the EU to Hungary because of of all the migration issues, because he said that uh, Hungary is the only country that is currently facing the wave of uh, migrants and refugees both uh, uh, from its uh, border with Serbia and from Ukraine. So it should be tackled on the EU level. Uh, And is he still vetoing the the release of 18 billion euro EU aid package to Ukraine? Well, that's very interesting because uh, what he said was that uh, that, uh, he... uh, 
expressed his support for financial aid to Ukraine. He said that he that Hungary has already put aside uh, the package that is expected from Hungary uh, to support Ukraine. But at the same time, he doesn't agree with the mechanism of this financial aid. He doesn't think that it should be uh, provided by by loan. That he he doesn't think that this financial aid should be uh, some kind of uh, uh, method of increasing EU debt. So he will agree with the financial aid, but not uh, by increasing the EU's debts. Uh, so so we could say that there it will be the, an issue still. Now, there's been outrage over a scarf that Viktor Orban wore on a Facebook video. Can you tell us why and how the Slovak leader addressed it? Yeah, that was also very funny. Well, we, we call it the politics of symbols in Central Europe. Uh, the, this scarf was a symbol of this uh, huge historic uh, dispute over historic borders of uh, Greater Hungary, as, as uh, Hungarians call it. Uh, that's uh, it refers to the uh, to the land uh, of uh, uh, Hungarian Kingdom, where obviously parts of uh, Several other countries from the region were included, and um, he, Mr. Orban, uh, Orban met some people uh, from the football uh, team, and they gave him this scarf with the map of this great Hungary. And uh, as it was shown on public space on social media, uh, prime ministers from several of these countries uh, uh, protested against this. Against this. Uh, but then uh, when uh, um, Eduard Heger, as the Slovak prime minister, was welcoming uh, Viktor Orban, he gave him a new scarf. Uh, uh, he said that uh, he had noticed that Mr. Orban had a, had, a, had an old scarf and he wanted to give him a, a new one. And on the new one, there, there was uh, Slovakia written on it. And when journalists asked Viktor Orban what was it that he wanted to achieve by all this, uh, he said that, well, uh, you should, as the English say, I'm quoting him now, as the English say, uh, take it easy, and uh, football is football, politics is politics. And on his uh, picture with all this uh, case, uh, he said, um, Hungarians and Slovaks, very good friends. So they basically tried to make it a joke and and trying to give a signal that uh, we shouldn't make a big fuss about it. Mm. Uh, And finally, there were some positives that came out of the meeting. The four did agree on various other not particularly contentious issues. Yeah, they agreed that they would cooperate uh, on migration uh, because at the moment there are some problems uh, about border controls uh, between these countries. It's quite funny that Slovakia and Czech Republic used to be one uh, federation and at the moment there are border controls, which is something really unusual for the two countries. And it's all because of the uh, migration. So they wanted to, uh, you know, put their effort together and and do something about it uh, on the EU level. But at the same time, for example, the Slovak prime minister has asked his uh, colleagues uh, from these countries to if they could help him if uh, if the strike of doctors and their planned resignations, uh, that's something that we uh, are, are tackling at the moment in Slovakia, if that uh, becomes effective, whether they would be able to help Slovakia with providing healthcare, and uh, apparently they expressed their their support and and their willingness to help even in this 
issue. Lucia, thank you very much indeed. That's Lucia Viraskova there. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. Sit down with a host of inspiring designers and architects featured in Monocle's November issue. They share their thoughts on bright ideas, on everything from the future of the office to community-built public design. It's being really clear that we can create the kind of infrastructure to make people feel like, I want to stay here, I want to stay invested here. In the affairs pages, we visit the people and places weaning Europe off fossil fuels, from a booming solar industry in Morocco to an off-grid village in Germany. Elsewhere, it's lights, camera, action in Mexico, where the global streaming wars are heating up and full steam ahead at the world's largest rail fair in Berlin. Order your copy of Monocle's November issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Taiwan votes in local elections this weekend in a poll that the president, Tsai Ing-wen, says is a referendum on her leadership. Saturday's elections for city mayors, county chiefs and local councillors are ostensibly about domestic issues such as the COVID-19 pandemic and crime. And those elected do not have a direct say on China policy. But Tsai has reframed the campaign to put relations with China, which views Taiwan as its own territory and has increased military pressure to assert those claims, to the fore. Well, William Yang is the East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle and joins us on the line from Taipei. Uh, William, many thanks for coming on Monocle 24. Tsai's second term expires in 2024. She's not able to stand again. Is this her attempt to ensure her legacy and also to stay firm to her ideals when when, uh, dealing with Beijing? Yeah, I think this is certainly a message that she hopes the voters will get and also she hopes to be able to actually secure a somewhat uh, firm stance and a foundation for her party going into the next presidential election, especially, as you said, she will not be able to run again. And uh, over the last eight years, uh, she has been able to actually promote Taiwan's uh, international visibility to a level that has not really been seen before. But obviously, also, as you just mentioned in the uh, earlier introduction, this up- upcoming election that will take place tomorrow has very little to do uh, with the main message that she hopes to send to the rest of the voters because um, the most of the concerns and most of the issues that people will actually be uh, care about and interested in is the people that will be managing their everyday life in every different parts of Taiwan. So, so far, we are not really seeing a big resonance to the message that she and her party are trying to push. How important are local elections? Local election generally helps to map out the overall influence of each political party in different parts of Taiwan. While uh, it actually has traditionally been going the way of the main opposition party in Taiwan over the last few local elections, in 2018 especially, uh, and we are projecting to see another big win for the opposition party. Somehow these local election results uh, can never really been translated into a success in the upcoming uh, presidential election because the factors that will determine the voter turnout and where the votes go to are very different in these two very different elections. And in terms of the main opposition, that's the Kuomintang, the KMT, what's their stance on China? 
Their stance on China has traditionally been more dialogue, more cooperation, and less confrontation. So, uh, and a lot of these past uh, stands has led to deeper economic ties and ec economic exchanges. But uh, since 2016, there has been a growing awareness of how China can use these economic linkages to really uh, hurt and also uh, put pressure on Taiwan. So the Taiwanese government uh, since then has deviated from that path. And the Taiwanese voter has put this issue to the forefront. So the Kuomintang has been forced to really reconsider where they actually stand in terms of uh, their China policy. But so far, there is not a very clear position that they have taken since the consecutive uh, defeats in presidential election over the last eight years. Now, in presidential elections, Taiwan has a really very good international reputation for uh, free and fair polls. Uh, the elections are open to international observers. They're conducted with very few issues. Can the same be said of local elections? Right. Basically, I think uh, that has been the trademark of Taiwan's democracy and also Taiwan's democratic election, which is that uh, it is very transparent and it is a multi-party system over the last few years, no longer just the two main parties competing for each other, even though uh, most of the time they still win the majority of the seats. Uh, but we are seeing a more diverse landscape uh, since 2016, 2018, there have been uh, other candidates from smaller parties uh, being elected. So uh, this actually upcoming local election that will take place tomorrow can also potentially help to predict and also as a precursor to determine whether there will be a third party candidate that will run in the upcoming presidential election in 2024. And I think that will be also very interesting to all international observers. But there have been uh, allegations of corruption. We know that amongst the candidates running uh, on November the 26th, nearly 200 have criminal records for electoral fraud or drunk driving charges. Uh, if this is the case, why are they allowed to stand? So because uh, of the fact that unless there have been very, very clear evidence and they've been prosecuted, they are still eligible uh, to run in elections until the day that they've been sentenced and uh, actually have to go into jail or have to pay fines and serve their time in prison. So uh, before that actually happens and before all these cases or so-called allegations have been proven to be true by the court, these candidates can still run in the elections. And a lot of the times we also see people with uh, allegedly past record in criminal gangs actually in, as front runners in some of these local uh, races. And that has been somewhat of a trademark also in Taiwan's very local grassroots level of politics because a lot of these po local politics are driven and dominated by local factions. And oftentimes uh, the people that are dominating and uh, being able to manipulate these local factions are people with very, very uh, influ a lot of influence at uh, each different parts of Taiwan. And so if you are part of a really influential criminal gang, that can potentially be a really good benefit for you to stand uh, for office. So is this perception of possible corrupt local elections true countrywide, or does it really depend on the remoteness of the region? 
It really varies in different parts of the country, uh, like, for example, in the capital city of Taipei, because uh, there is a lot more attention to the races and also it's a lot more competitive. So there's actually a lot less of these attempts to try to buy votes. But if you go to the more remote and countryside areas of Taiwan, buy, vote buying and also giving gifts uh, to your local constituents has been a tradition practiced by candidates from both parties because that's how they secure and consolidate their local faction. Uh, and that has just been the way that these local factions have been run and managed. But uh, I think with the officials in different parts of Taiwan uh, starting to really stepping up their games of uh, going after these uh, allegations, I think we are going to see hopefully a decrease in the number of these attempts to try to buy votes and uh, try to bribe people into voting for certain candidates or certain political parties. And William, finally, if Tsai Ing-wen's party doesn't do well and it's not predicted to particularly, what does that mean for the future of her administration, her remaining two years in office? While it is not going to largely hurt uh, the agenda that her government and her party are trying to push nationally, uh, she will likely have to step down as the party leader. That's another very important role that she's been holding on to since being re-elected as president in 2020. And uh, that's not necessarily saying that her party is going to face a lot of difficulty or growing pre growing pressure going into 2024. It just means that she will have to make way for a clear successor who is likely going to be nominated by her party for the 2024 election. And so far, the front runner is being predicted to be the current vice president, William Lai. And uh, if that's the case, then uh, there could potentially be a somewhat different approach to China issues and Taiwan's foreign policy and the overall agenda that uh, is going to dominate the next presidential election. So, but we still have to see how the outcome tomorrow will really play out for and pave the way for 2024. William, thank you very much indeed. That was William Yang in Taipei. Still to come on today's programme, we'll be in Zurich to review the papers. Isabel Hamilton will bring us the day's business news. And then Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, tells us what he's been keeping an eye on this week. We mostly learned this week that a World Cup staged in a country with a dismal human rights record and almost zero footballing tradition in the middle of winter, yet nevertheless in scorching sunshine, was about as good an idea in practice as it had long seemed in theory. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
It's 10.23 in Mogadishu, 7.23 here in London. President Mohammed of Somalia has pledged to defeat the Islamic fundamentalist armed group Al-Shabaab, which is believed to enjoy the backing of Al-Qaeda. As part of this initiative, he's banned the use of the name and also inaugurated a new television channel to counter all kinds of coverage relating to the terrorist ideology and acts of intimidation of the jihadist group. Well, I'm joined now by Mary Harper, Africa editor at BBC World Service. Uh, Good morning to you, Mary. Many thanks for coming on Monocle 24. What more do we know about this television channel? This TV channel, I've actually watched some of it. It's really quite bizarre. It's called TV Dalgir. And as you say, it's a um, state media operation. And basically, it's there to trumpet the recent success of government and its allied forces against al-Shabaab. So there's lots of scenes from the battlefield, lots and lots of images of soldiers and uh, uh, clan militias with all of their weapons and their bullets and everything else um, interspersed with clips of President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud and others talking about their victories. So the aim of it, at least the stated aim, is to kind of Uh, counter al-Shabaab's propaganda, which is very sophisticated, but also to show that the government is actually making some headway um, for the first time in many, many years against the group. And and just let's unpick how sophisticated al-Shabaab's own media operation is. Are they on many platforms? How do they get their message across? Al-Shabaab has been described as the kind of leader in terms of Islamist groups and their use of propaganda and social and conventional media. They have, for example, uh, radio stations, which are often closed down by the government when the government can close them, but they pop up elsewhere because lots of Somalis and oral culture and lots of people rely on radio. They also issue very sophisticated propaganda videos that look a bit like... Um, uh, they look a bit like war movies or, or, or computer games. They're, they're very high quality um, and and kind of full of uh, rousing speeches. And they have some with kind of rap style music to attract people in the West. They have some in the Kiswahili language to attract uh, followers uh, and fighters from across East Africa. So they're very, very slick in terms of their propaganda. Mm. And they're also very good at contacting certain journalists, uh, myself included, I'm afraid to say, who who report on Somalia for kind of major news organisations. So they have hotlines to people uh, who they communicate with very effectively. And uh, in terms of production values, can the new channel compete with that slickness? Uh, So far... I would say no. So far, it's really very basic in terms of, um, you know, the film filming style. After all, they, these these images are being filmed uh, are being filmed from the front line. So obviously, the conditions are extremely difficult and dangerous. But it doesn't have any of that kind of wow factor, I suppose, that Al Shabaab propaganda has. But I do think it's interesting that this new government that's come in fairly recently is trying to sort of tackle. The the issue of al-Shabaab, which has been in um, operation for almost 15 years now, they're, they're basically attacking it on three fronts, militarily, 
financially and then also through the use of uh, sort of countering violence, uh, extremism in terms of media and propaganda. So they have got this three pronged approach, which is uh, more effective than, than anything I've seen in, in the past several years. Mary, what does Al-Shabaab want to achieve? What's the motive for the violence unleashed by the group in Somalia and other areas of East Africa? Yes, this is a somewhat complicated question because uh, different members of Al-Shabaab, different leaders of Al-Shabaab over time um, have, have given very different uh, philosophies about what they want. There was one leader who was eventually killed in an American airstrike, um, Airo, he was known as. He said he wanted to take the jihad all the way to Alaska, um, so a sort of world jihad. There's been others who want to have it in the Arabian Peninsula, so Somalia, Yemen, um, and other parts of the Horn of Africa. But um, in in some ways, if you, their 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 aim really seems the sort of re, more realistic aim seems to be confined to Somalia, and they want to impose a, a strict Islamic caliphate uh, within Somalia itself. And is Somalia receiving much international support for its fight with Al Shabaab? Well, this is another reason for the recent turnaround. They have, um, under Donald Trump, the, he stopped the American uh, support for, for, for the offensive against al-Shabaab. Now, that has been uh, allowed to intensify under, uh, under Biden um, and, and to restart. So the Americans... I mean, in Mogadishu, when I go there now, you can't really sleep because you just hear drones taking off from the airport the whole time. So they're just going after Al-Shabaab from the air. Then you have an African Union force with troops from all over East Africa who, who work alongside the Somali army. Um, and then you have uh, special forces who've been very effective, who've been trained by the US, by Turkey, and other outside powers. So there, there is a, a sort of pretty concerted international backing that is helping um, the government quite significantly at the moment. Mary, thank you very much indeed. That was Mary Harper, Africa editor at the BBC World Service. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Ukraine has said that around half the country's electricity needs are currently not being met following a wave of Russian missile strikes. Ukraine's power operator says it's attempting to fix key facilities, but that repairs will take time. The International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor is attempting to launch proceedings against the feared Ugandan rebel leader Joseph Kony. An arrest warrant was issued for Kony 17 years ago, but he has evaded capture. Elon Musk has said Twitter will provide a general amnesty to some suspended accounts from next week. The world's richest man has already reinstated a number of accounts, including that of the former US president, Donald Trump. And a bill to ban bullfighting in France has been pulled after hundreds of amendments to the proposal were tabled by MPs. Bullfighting remains popular in many parts of southern France and the government had officially opposed the ban. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. A $900 million project to build India's first container transshipment port has been stalled due to protests by the region's fishing community, who believe it will destroy their livelihood. But today, the Adani conglomerate, which owns the port, plans to send heavy vehicles in after the court this week said vehicle movement 
should not be blocked. Well, Harsh Pant is a Professor of International Relations with King's India Institute and joins me now. Harsh, what is a transshipment port and can you tell us about plans for this initiative? This is uh, an international deep water multipurpose seaport in the Indian state of Kerala, which the idea is to develop this into a multipurpose port that can be used for multiple activities in the region, including uh, trade and commerce. And the the, the local government has been very uh, proactive in making sure that uh, initially it comes in and it develops gives a developmental perspective to the region, which really needs a lot of development. But, uh, you know, as as you were saying, uh, there has been a lot of concern in the local area about what it has done, because this has been going on now since 2015, and what it has done to a local uh, ecology, local communities, and how it has impacted the local fisheries. Mm. So, uh, the, you know, there has been a lot of back and forth about this this big port in the region, which basically is uh, is is an economic project. But there are many who are uh, viewing it with suspicion, given its impact on the local environment. And, and what form are the protests taking? Well, the protests uh, have been going on, uh, you know, in fairly uh, reasonable way. There has been uh, the, the local communities say that they have been reaching out to the government ever since, you know, this was started. And uh, since 2015, there have been demands that, uh, look, uh, this has been, uh, there are going to be problems with this project and therefore this has to be reconsidered and they have written to the government they have engaged the government uh, you know the, the government of the indian state of kerala and uh, now of course uh, they have uh, they are you know the the fishermen are uh, are showing up at the construction site of this of the sport and uh, now they're raising slogans they're also waving flags there have been some concerns expressed from the adani port that uh, you know the, what what is going to happen to the security of their people because some of the protesters have tried to uh, reach the site uh, and and uh, lay siege there they have pulled down the police barricades to enter the premises also so there have been uh, you know there there have been uh, you know back and forth between the security between the police and the protesters and the protesters uh, and there is uh, there has been an active engagement of course the government has said that uh, you know that uh, the complete cessation of work on this project would not be entertained that they really, the government is keen on continuing the project and they have made it very clear to the protesters that while they, they are willing to consider the demands, they are willing to look into it, the government is now uh, reaching out to them in a big way, but they will not really halt the project. And I think in some ways that has been a bone of contention. Is there a religious element to it, given that most of the protesters are Catholic and they do seem to be being led by priests? It is, it is, I think, uh, uh, being led by the uh, Latin Catholic diocese there. But I don't think there is a, there is a particularly a religious element there because uh, the, the questions are more related to ecology and more related to what the local community uh, is, is look, how, how they are looking at their own uh, issue of rehabilitation and livelihood. And uh, what the church has said is that the government should actually conduct a survey and study and and first, before moving forward, they should address the issues of uh, rehabilitation and how the fishing community's livelihood is going to be affected by this project. And uh, in terms of the the demands that uh, the government of Kerala has said that they accept the demands of the church and they're willing to move forward. But what, what what the government is saying is that 
even as they look into these issues, they are not going to cease halt work on this project. Mm. So I don't think there's a particularly religious element here, but certainly it is being led by the local, uh, you know, local Latin uh, archdiocese. Mm. And Harsh, just just briefly, are the protesters likely to go quietly if challenged today, or could we see violence erupting? Uh, it's unlikely that violence uh, will erupt. Uh, my own sense is that uh, you know that um, uh, there is a, you know a tacit understanding between the authorities and the protesters that. Uh, because the government has accepted the demand to to take forward the the question of a of, of a broader study of this and and to look into the demands of of, uh, of rehabilitation, they are unlikely to uh, to move into a territory where there'll be violence or whether whether one side will be physically or or in any way affected. But I think uh, that the dangers are that if this is not taken seriously, if this is not uh, you know. The demands of environment and ecology and livelihood is not taken seriously, then I think it also would have an impact on other such projects, which uh, which might the government may might be considering. And of course, the local people will be, uh, you know, will, there, there'll be this perception that there's a divide between the government and the local populace. And I don't think in any developmental agenda, that's a really helpful way of moving forward. So one would hope that this would be resolved without... Uh, you know, any any major violence and any any major uh, disruption, but disruption certainly is a possibility. I don't I don't anticipate any any major provocation by the side. Professor Harsh Pant of King's Institute India, thank you very much indeed. This is the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. It is uh, just coming up to 8.38 in Zurich, 7.38 here in London. And we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Noelle Alejandra Salmi is a travel, culture and sustainability writer and she joins us now from our headquarters in Zurich. Good morning to you, Noelle. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, So let's start by talking about Twitter, which everybody seems to be doing at the moment, except people are not talking very much on Twitter as droves are leaving. Uh, The Washington Post says, uh, with the headline, Opening the Gates of Hell, this is all about Elon Musk, the world's richest man, who, of course, has bought Twitter, saying that he'll revive banned accounts. Tell us more. Uh, Yes, that's right. As the Washington Post reported, um, Elon Musk uh, held a poll yesterday where he asked, should Twitter offer a general amnesty to suspended accounts provided they have not broken the law or engaged in egregious spam? Well, three million Twitter uh, users answered the poll with 70 percent of them, more than 70 percent of them in favor. And experts say, of course, that the mass return of users who were originally banned for offenses like violent threats, harassment, abuse, and misinformation would clearly have serious effects. And of course, Musk didn't actually define what egregious spam is or much of anything else. In fact, the entire poll is remarkably unserious, given that there's no way to determine how many respondents were bots or simply bad actors. Mm. And before Musk, uh, entire teams of employees would use serious protocols to do research, market uh, research on this kind of question. Um, as Nora Benavides, who's a senior counsel and director of digital justice at Free Press said, conducting major moderation and enforcement decisions on a whim is troubling CEO behavior. She said basically, she said that Musk, under the auspices of democracy, was legitimizing decisions that would be deeply dangerous. Um, 
another person, uh, Alejandra Caraballo, agreed. She is a clinical instructor at Harvard Law Cyber Law Clinic. And she basically is the one who likened it to opening the gates of hell, calling it existentially dangerous for marginalized communities um, like LGBT communities. I mean, you could have uh, Nazi sympathizers back on uh, back on Twitter. Um, so basically, you know, people who had previously been targeted for harassment, for vicious bullying, I could again be targeted. Mm. Um, and she called on Apple and Google to ser- seriously consider booting Twitter from the App Store. Um, the only good news here is that it's a little bit questionable what Musk can actually accomplish, uh, considering the fact that he has laid off all the leaders of his uh, trust and safety team, which would normally handle the logistics of actually activating these accounts. And again, we also know that dozens of Twitter advertisers have stopped spending on the platform in the wake of his takeover. Uh, so his approach to content moderation is not winning too many supporters at this time. Of course, one of the people that's been allowed back is Donald Trump, but so far he's declined to take up the invitation. And surely that's got to do with business because he's put his money into Truth Social, his own platform. But that only succeeds, I imagine, as long as Trump stays loyal to it and exclusively loyal to it. Yeah, that's correct. So... Yeah, let's 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 move on now. Um, you were talking about LGBT haters on the site who who might uh, make problems for for people on Twitter. Well, of course, that crosses over into real life now in Qatar, where the World Cup has uh, uh, been going on and continuing to go on. Uh, people wearing rainbow colours have been banned from entering the stadium, but uh, the Frankfurter Allgemeine reports that that's no longer the case. Uh, Yeah, that's correct. Um, So people have been banned or they've been forced to take things off, turn their shirts inside out, that sort of thing. Uh, In fact, earlier this week, there was an interesting report that was actually in the Stato di San Paolo that I was reading that a um, a reporter from the northeastern state of Pernambuco, uh, he was reporting for seven different outlets there um, and what should have been a dream assignment turned into a nightmare when he went to film two colleagues holding up the flag of his home state, Pernambuco. Well, it turns out the flag of Pernambuco has a blue sky with a bright rainbow across it. And uh, he reported being assaulted, uh, in his words, by Qatari guards who confiscated his camera and made him erase the video of the flag. So this is just one example of serious harassment. Um, So now there's obviously been so much uh, controversy related to it, the German uh, team covering their mouths, um, that uh, they have now reached, Qatar has now reached an agreement with FIFA, and FIFA um, has assured Wales, which will be playing the first game today against Iran uh, in the second round, that uh, fans will be welcome into the stadium with, uh, with their rainbow colors, and uh, and that will be the case uh, ongoing for the rest of the round two games. And uh, Qatar has assured FIFA that they have told security in all of their locations uh, and stadiums of this change. Uh, Noel, I know where you are. You're in our, uh, our studio uh, and cafe at uh, <laughs> Diffestrasse 90. And, and I can just imagine, I think that that noise is the, a very clean Swiss garbage truck going by. Is you it? are absolutely correct, Georgina, <laughs> that they, but they have now just left. <laughs> well, that's very good. But talking about kind of Swiss cleanliness and efficiency and all the rest of it, uh, and also this this sense of kind of moral obligation and doing the right thing, we understand that many Swiss residents say they're not going to have Christmas lights this year. 
Uh, yeah, that's correct, Georgina. And it's a, uh, it, and even it. So yesterday, in fact, was the official Christmas lighting day in Zurich, um, which the Tagesanzeiger reported. Um, but the official, the city of Zurich, has settled on having the same amount of Christmas lights but for shorter periods of time. So they'll be turning them off at 10 p.m. instead of midnight, and they won't be lighting them in the early morning. Uh, and on the 24th, the 25th, and New Year's, uh, three days when they are typically on all night, they will also be turned off at 10 p.m. But uh, it's a little bit more severe in private homes around Canton Zurich, uh, as the Tagesanzeiger reported. Um, residents aren't going to be putting up the Christmas lights at all uh, because they feel they... Uh, they really, they will feel pressure from their neighbors. Um, and they interviewed, the Tagesanzeiger interviewed Thomas Furbringer, who they said has some of the best known private Christmas lights in Switzerland. And he will not be lighting his family home uh, in Utikon Waldweg this year, um, which it normally has glowing parrots, reindeer, swans, snowmen, and fairy lights. And he has been lighting it since 1993. Um, and apparently it's not so much, uh, according to him, due to energy usage. A local TV station had actually worked out that his 40,000 lights, 99.9% of which are LED, use only as much electricity as an oven turned on to 150 degrees. Uh, but he said he felt pressured, too, by self-righteous citizens. Or perhaps um, on the grounds of good taste, even. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lit up parrot. Um, yeah, interesting. Noel, I am going to be there to see it for myself next weekend because, of course, it is our Zurich Christmas market. Uh, and I'm going to be broadcasting live from there on both Saturday and Sunday. And, of course, as you know, at Dufferstrasse 90, what we tend to do is just light up the whole place with this beautiful glow of candles. Yes. I think it's fantastic. going to be adorable. Uh, I look forward to talking to you in person then. Uh, and thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. That was Noel Alejandra Salmi in Zurich. And you're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, it's time now to talk business with Isabel Hamilton, who's a senior reporter at The Daily Upside. Isabel, of course, sport is dominating the headlines at the moment everywhere you look because of the FIFA World Cup. But uh, also that's crossing over into business. Uh, shock uh, announcement from Manchester United owners saying that they're going to sell the club. Yeah, so this is the Glazer family. They're an American sort of tycoon family that have owned Man U for about 17 years and they've announced that they're putting the club up for sale. Um, they're looking for about £7 billion as a price tag, which is perhaps a little ambitious given the club wasn't profitable last year, but it's all a bit up in the air at the minute. Mm. Uh, why is David Beckham important to this? Well, it's not certain that he is, but the Financial Times reported that, well, they've got some sources basically who told them that Beckham is open to talks with potential buyers because, I mean, he, Beckham doesn't actually have the funds to buy the club himself, um, but he could attach himself to a bid and that would, you know, strengthen that bid. So potential buyers like banks, um, you know, businessmen from America, Saudi Arabia, these people who tend to 
invest in football clubs nowadays, they could potentially get them on board. Mm. And in terms of other buyers, I mean, what about when we look at at so-called sports washing? What about people like, uh, I understand Sir Jim Ratcliffe is, is in the frame as a possible buyer. Now, he owns a petrochemical group. Yeah, I mean, look, Chelsea was owned by Roman Abramovich for a very long time. Anyone can <laughs> sort of buy a sports club and there's not always a strong sort of moral framework for who can. I mean, the Glazers haven't been popular. Manchester United fans protested against them earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, United, of course, is one of the biggest brands in sport. I guess their rivals, as the FT points out, are Real Madrid and FC Barcelona of Spain. But in fact, those can't be sold because they're member owned. Uh, isn't that possibly more desirable for supporters of, of Manchester United? Oh, I'm sure lots of fans would like that idea. Um, I'm just not sure that that's something that the Glazers would let happen. Mm. Uh, Let's move on now to uh, the Meta seeking government protection from uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's EU law bonfire. Mm. So Jacob Rees-Mogg is trying to pass a bill that would essentially purge about 4,000 EU laws that we've still got on the books because we haven't got round to changing them, reviewing them, that kind of thing. So he wants to basically scrap them at the end of the year if they haven't been looked at. And one of those laws is very important to social media companies. It's a base called the Electronic Commerce uh, Regulations, and it basically stops them from being liable for stuff that other people put on their platform. So let's say someone put something something awful like child abuse imagery on Facebook, they can't be held legally responsible for that imagery. Right. And it's not just that. I mean, there are all sorts of things like food safety, for instance. Oh, yeah. I mean, social media isn't the only industry that's going to be impacted by this. It's, you know, it's 4,000 laws. It's going to cover lots and lots of different things. They're just seeking an exemption or that I guess they're trying to get the government to address that law in particular because they're sort of making noises about, oh, you know, if you if you scrap this law, it'll make it difficult to do business here. It's not the first time Meta has actually threatened to sort of withdraw from a country over regulations. So, yeah, they're, they're one of, I'm sure, many different businesses that are worried about this. Mm. And of course, the speed at which the government proposes to do this is the other thing that people are really criticising. They feel that it's being absolutely bulldozed through. Right. Again, it's 4,000 different laws. And the idea is to get it, you know, out the door by the end of the year. That's in like a month's time. That's very, very fast, isn't it? Uh, Let's uh, keep with the UK economy. And we're looking at demand for rental homes here in the UK up by 23% in a year. Yes. So demand for the rental home market has absolutely skyrocketed and this has put pressure on prices. I'm sure there's well, there are several economic factors here, but one big one is first time buyers or prospective first time buyers holding off on getting a mortgage because of the absolute bedlam we saw with Liz Truss's uh, proposed mini budget. So that means that fewer people are kind of getting out of the rental market. Um, which means that we've had uh, a 23% rise in the number of people inquiring about homes to rent compared to last year. Mm. And um, what I'm finding particularly shocking, just speaking to people who are trying to rent, is that there seems to be some kind of bidding system that, that, I mean, before you'd see a flat, if you liked it, you'd say, I'll take it. Now it's going to the highest bidder. And often people are being asked to pay up to a year's rent in advance. Yeah, it's absolutely mad. Um, I was looking at places the other day and it was such a difference compared to before November when I was also kind of scouting about um, there's just far fewer places on offer as well 
um, like smaller sort of one to two bedroom flat sort of things. There are all sorts of horrific stories out there about people uh, viewing things which are essentially, you know, a, a bathroom with a bed in it or a kitchen with a loo in the corner. I mean, you must have heard your fair share of stories like that. <laughs> uh, I haven't heard anything too horrendous recently, luckily. It's just, you know, it's more... It, it, it's it, it just it's just it just makes it very daunting to get into. Absolutely, Isabel. Thank you very much indeed. That was Isabel Hamilton. You're with the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. <laughs> And finally, on today's programme, we join Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, to fill in the gaps in our news knowledge. We learned this week that there are those pleasures in this life which are irresistible regardless of the circumstances. And they're all at sea. Suddenly here, Argentina, and they're now behind. Alda Sereri. Japan have done it. An opening day win for the Samurai Blue. One of their most famous ever results. And to Germany, it's happened all over again as it did at the last... Apologies to our many listeners in Argentina and Germany, but we're broadcasting from London. So this sort of cheap gloating is basically the law around here. But we mostly learned this week that a World Cup staged in a country with a dismal human rights record and almost zero footballing tradition in the middle of winter, yet nevertheless in scorching sunshine, was about as good an idea in practice as it had long seemed in theory. We learned very shortly before kickoff. Reaching for the top shelves in the sound effects library this week, we learned very shortly before kickoff. All right, that the strain of keeping one shoulder to the props of this particular Potemkin edifice was beginning to tell, unless we learned that FIFA president Gianni Infantino actually had figured out where one can find a drink in Qatar. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel... uh, Gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. We learned that Mr. Infantino had decided that this rhetorical flourish, which, if we may make so bold, might have landed better if he'd illustrated each one with a different appropriately themed hat, was the best means of addressing the criticisms much made of the 2022 World Cup host, many of which rather came to the boil as the event got underway, a motif upon which we shall presently elaborate. But returning to Mr. Infantino's agonising, we also learned, for he was determined to leave us in little doubt, of the roots of his empathy. They know what it means to be discriminated, to be bullied as a foreigner in a foreign country, as a child at school. I was bullied because I had uh, red hair. And indeed, fair play, we learned when we looked it up that Qatar does not presently maintain laws against red hair on pain of imprisonment as it does where homosexuality is concerned and are happy therefore to concede Mr Infantino this point. 
can we have some general muttered agreement? Yeah. We also learned that Mr. Infantino had some thoughts on parenting, though have not learned as of this broadcast how excited Qatar was to be cast as the half-witted infant in the ensuing analogy. When uh, your child does something uh, bad at school and you tell him you're an idiot, you're useless, and you put him in, a, in his room, what do you think his reaction will be? Hey, didn't do us any harm. Anyway. Official 2022 World Cup theme, that is, we do our research. We learned, once it was too late for anyone to turn back, that a great many of the pre-tournament reassurances and indeed blandishments turned out when push came to shove to be neither reassuring nor blandishing. We learnt that, after all, team captains who'd planned to do so would not be allowed to wear rainbow-patterned One Love armbands because of the well-known scientific fact that glimpsing colourful stripes turns people gay. Busy week for you guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can't invoice for extra, you know. We further learned that the vigilance of Qatari authorities against the subversive menace posed by rainbows extended to potentially corrupting headgear worn by fans. Former Wales women's football captain and occasional Monocle 24 guest Laura McAllister was among them, as captured in this admittedly uninteresting but nevertheless authentic audio. While we learned that most current footballers were unwilling to challenge any of these strictures once it was made clear that they might be subject to the brutal and terrifying punishment of having a small shard of yellow plastic waved at them, we learned that a few found a way around it, understanding that in some circumstances keeping your mouth shut makes a more powerful statement than opening it. Again, this presents some challenges vis-a-vis -vis illustrating it for radio, but we weren't the only ones who saw it. Now we have the image of the tournament so far. It is of the German team in their team photo ahead of kickoff covering their mouths. We also learned that footballers tempting rather more severe retribution, specifically those representing Iran, were willing to let their silence speak volumes, declining to sing their national anthem, while their government back home continues to visit lethal violence upon women who'd maybe like to make their own decisions about whether or not they put a scarf on. We learned that a large cohort of Iran's supporters were happy to make their feelings plainer. Actually, they can play us out. It seems fitting. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much to Andrew. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Rhys James, Marcus Hippie and Laura Kramer, our researcher, Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Nora Hall. I'll be bringing you music and sharp programming all the way up to and including The Briefing, which is live at midday in London. And The Globalist returns at the same time on Monday. And of course, our shows continue over the weekend, where one of the highlights will be a conversation with the US writer Percival Everett, whose book The Trees has just won the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for Comic Fiction. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>